Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Well, following the cardinal rule of exponent, which is if you ever actually write an article, we absolutely have to record a podcast. <laughs> I was I was sitting there last night and I was like, man, I just need an excuse to sit up and sit up till three a.m. in the morning. And I was like, what better what better excuse than writing about uh, Intel and disruption and Apple? That feels like a pretty good reason to do yeah, it. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I wrote about the the same event and Apple and Intel and chips and whatnot. But you know, there, it's always it's always good to go back to the disruption well. And I have to say, uh, all compliments to you because we will put a link in the show notes to your article. But in the article, you take this graph from Anantech, which I also used in in my article that shows how sort of the Apple A chip has been increasing more rapidly than Intel is overtaking it, hmm. and you compared it to like the the generic sort of disruption graph. And it's like a perfect hmm. match. Spot on. Brilliant. That was that was such a great that was such a great sort of juxtaposition. This is, I guess, one of the advantages of of uh having hung around Clay for a bit. I saw versions of that graph uh <laughs> numerous times in class or subsequently. And so literally that Anantech graph got posted to Twitter and I saw it and I'm like Oh my God. Like in terms of matching it perfectly. And then I don't know. And we should get into it, but the, the history of Andy Grove and Clay. Um, uh, Andy, uh, found out about Clay's research pretty early on in, uh, in Clay's life as an academic and called up Clay and asked him to come in and to, uh, to talk to him about, like, you know, what's going on uh, with this disruption thing and how it applied to Intel. Yeah, wh- what was and the time period for this? This was this was um, uh, in the mid nineties. So and I think um, like the, the his first book was published in ninety five or ninety six, right? Or was it ninety three? No, the book came out in ninety nine. Oh, okay. Um, it was the it was the HBO article that came out earlier. It was the article that got, it was the article that, um, that got a lot of people's attention. And then the book came out subsequently and, and Grove famously went up on stage at Comdex when the book came out and said how important it was. But the article is what got a lot of people's attention. And so Grove, while he was still, um, CEO of Intel actually asked Clay to come speak to their management team about disruption and, um, you know, uh, the, the, I, I love I love Clay's way of telling the story. It's always it was always so folksy, but it it went something along the lines of like, you know, Clay, I'm a busy man and I don't have time for this academic drivel. So can you just come and tell me what this means? And and Clay, in his usual way, was like, "Look, Andy, I just need to explain it to you. Like, give me five more minutes." And Andy's in this rush, and Clay's always like, "Whatever." And he tells him the the story of what happened in the mini mills, and Grove just gets it and runs with it. And famously, that that conversation in sort of like Intel lore is directly connected to Intel launching the seller and pro- seller on processors, which were sort of the low cost version of the, the Pentium processors. And there was a lot of, you know, question about what Intel, you know, it's kind of assumed that Intel would take the high end. They were dominant, but AMD had been there. I think there was like Via, I think was making x86 processors at the time. It's sort of like the assumption was that those other companies would sort of pick up the scraps at the low end. And Intel basically said no, and they they brought to bear sort of their 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 power, their manufacturing prowess, their sort of scale, and went down market and beat their competitors down market. And and it was a classic case of sort of like not letting that that sort of challenger even in the door. Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's you, you use the word classic, but it's interesting because this is a this is a theme that you and I have picked up on. It is so hard for companies to do this. I mean, it's one thing for cannibalization to take place, and we can get into, and we probably will because this touches on what you wrote. How Apple managed to do that to the iPod with the iPhone, and that's difficult. But as you've always pointed out, the iPhone is like a more expensive, higher margin product, so it's much more tolerable. What was crazy about what Andy managed to do with Intel was this was cannibalizing their high-end, high-margin products with something that was um, much lower margin. And, you know, in the annals of business history, that's not something that happens very often. I will say, though, I mean, so what are, what are the debates we've had? I mean, not, we're, we're, we're sort of like diving right into this right off the bat. But one of the mm. ongoing debates we've had is I maintain that there are like degrees of disruption, right? And mm. if you're like truly disrupted in the absolute classic sense where there's a technological change that allows sort of uh, a challenger to produce something at a, at a meaningfully differentiated cost advantage. So I think the classic example here we've talked about is sort of like Airbnb versus hotels, for example, right? Mm. If a Best Western watch provide a Ritz-like experience, they're going to have to charge a Ritz-like right. price to, to cover it, whereas Airbnb can offer something completely different because it's coming at it in a sort of orthogonal way. And mm-hmm. and and, and so that's very difficult for hotels to respond to. In this case, I, I, and so this is the reason why I've pushed back on Apple, for example, being labeled as, oh, they disrupted themselves. Look at how amazing mm-hmm. that is. Well, the, the iPhone, it's not very, dis- it's like, it's impressive organizationally that the iPhone replaced the iPod because the, you know, of course, mm-hmm. the iPod division was making lots of money and profits, et cetera, right. et cetera. Or actually, they'll tell you there were no divisions, which is silly because there was an mm-hmm. iPod division and there was an iPhone division, but whatever. Um, but, but the, the, uh, but in that case, they're selling a, a product that costs more and actually made them mm-hmm. more money. So from a big picture perspective, it's like, oh, wait, this is impressive, but it's not quite an example of you of you sort of like disproving the idea of disruption. It can be undone, et cetera, et cetera. I think there is a bit of that with the Intel, Intel example. And the reason is that on one hand, the impressive part that absolutely deserves praise is the fact that is this cannibalization part. Like for sure, seller on processors – uh, were sold to people or sold into systems who might otherwise have bought more expensive Intel processors. And, and that definitely cost Intel margin and co- mm. cost them revenue sort of over time. The, the one, the thing to keep in mind though is that fabs are the ultimate sort of scale play. You, they cost mm. billions of dollars to build. And by definition, the more volume you can pump through them, the better. And so given that, for sure, like having higher volume was a good thing. It was it was a bad thing to cannibalize themselves, but they were still gaining benefits. And I, I say this not mm-hmm. to sort of diminish what Andy Grove did because it really was impressive. And and to do this meant they had to build more fabs, right? So they were they were getting in for more money and they were making bigger investments. So it was a big risk. I, I only bring it up just because I've been on the side of like I'm not sure if like. True disruption, and mm. maybe true is not the way right to put it, but like full scale, all the way up and down, like new business model right. can be overcome. This is sort of like halfway, but it that doesn't diminish in any way the credit Grove should get for grasping the concept and then acting on it in in, in, in with the Celeron processor. Yeah, one hundred percent. It raises a really interesting point, and one of the questions I had when I was when I was writing this. So the the the, the, the basic idea is like Grove retires not long after. Um, 
not long after he goes on stage. He's actually, when he's on stage at Comdex, he's actually executive chairman. He's no longer running the company. But he 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 retires altogether from Intel in 2005, which is when uh, Paul Ottolini takes over. And around that time is when Apple went to Intel. And uh, just to take everybody back, at this point, um, Apple had just switched over to Intel processors from the PowerPC processor, which had been <laughs> a bit of a slog for those who remember uh, those, C- the, the, those processor days. But like, they just switched over and Apple like was working on this new thing. And they kind of went went to Intel for first right of refusal and said, look, we're doing this new thing. We need a different type of chip. We need it to be, uh, we need it to be lower cost. We definitely need it to be lower power because it's going to be mobile. And, um, Ottolini famously passed on it. Now it's more complicated than just like, oh, we could have done it, but we decided not to because the margins didn't look good and we underestimated the volumes. And that's something that you've also written about. But like, I can't help but wonder whether Grove with his experience and his belief in, in disruption, but also and again, like the history of how he managed to recreate Intel, admittedly from a low margin memory product that was being commoditized into a differentiated CPU uh, manufacturer. So going up market rather than down market. But I, I can't help but wonder, had he been there when this happened, whether he might have made a diff- different decision to the one that Ottolini ended up making, which was like, Intel's not doing this, you know, it's our way or the highway. We make the chips and you either take it or you leave it. There's there's so much in there. I, like, I want to unpack every everything that you just said there because like, there's so many interesting points. So let's start by going back to the memory business because I think this is something that I wrote about at the very beginning of trajectory. And I think it, mm. it comes to bear on this entire discussion. And, and, and it's really about, it's an Andy Grove point again. And what happened was, as you sort of mentioned, and just I'm sort of re- restating it, mm-hmm. Intel got their start in the memory business. They they were one of the most famous sort of moves in sort of chip building history. It goes back to this cost idea where Bob Noyce, the the, the founder of Intel for CEO, uh, went went on stage and basically announced this new memory chip for I think it was 25 cents, and at the time it cost Intel a dollar to produce. And everyone was like, mine was completely blown. Like, what are they doing? How can they do this? It's ridiculous. What what he grasped is that the cost curve for these, like, if they sold it at 25 cents, they would sell so many of them that they would bend their cost curve well under 25 cents. And Mm. and so it was like basically selling ahead of the cost curve, which no one had really done before. Everyone would sort of try to cover their costs from day one. And so he got out there. He sells it for 25 cents. These exact numbers might be incorrect, but the the, the story is definitely true. And he sells it, uh, sells it for 25 cents. Within like three months, they're already producing it for under under 25 cents or, or some very short amount of time, way faster than even Intel anticipated because it, it it showed that you it was you make it up in volume, right? Make it up mm. in volume sort of got a bad rap after the internet at the dot-com era. But <laughs> the truth is, is that technology is all about making it up in volume because th- this is the sort of core economic concept that we talk about again and again, this idea of zero marginal cost where you put mm. all this investment up front. And it's why chips, it's why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley because chips have very similar economic sort of uh, uh, stories as software does. You, you spend a lot up front, but then to produce additional copies, is, it costs very, very little money. And Intel, and this was this is why the story was, was sort of a seminal story, not just for Intel, but for the Valley as a whole, this idea that you're going to make it up in volume. 
So Intel is in the memory business. It, the problem is that the meanwhile, I think it was the Japanese uh, producers in particular were coming along and just really sort of eating in, in Intel's lunch. They were producing uh, at, at better volumes with better prices, and Intel was really, really sort of struggling at first year mm. of of a loss. And uh, this is a company that's been growing like a weed, you know, all, all the way along. And there's this super famous story. Where Andy Grove and Gordon Moore, who was the second CEO, another co-founder, uh, were, were in the office, you know, talking about what do we do about this memory business? And meanwhile, they have this sort of like burgeoning sort of chip business. And they're like, oh, wait, if someone else walked in this office, what would they do? And they're like, and, and like they would get us out of memory. <laughs> it's like, well, then we should get out of memory. And the, the, the challenge there is it was, it was compelling economically to get out of memory. Oh, hold on, hold on. I think there, there's uh, maybe I have this wrong, but there's a more dramatic version of this story, which is um, that fire us and get us out of. Memory. Oh, I think that might be and right. <laughs> they they fire us and get us out of memory, and then they looked at each other, and it was like, "What should we do?" And it's like, "Well, we should just fire ourselves." So they walked downstairs, out the front door of the revolving door, and came back in, uh, rehired as CEOs of the CPU business. I don't. I don't know if they actually did the walk out the door, but I want to believe that it's true. So I'm going I, with. That's it. what I heard. That's my version. <laughs> Silicon Valley law. Well, anyhow, the, the long and short of it is they got out of memory, and the issue here it was a cultural thing. Like they, they, it was going to cost a lot of people. Like Intel was a memory business. That's what they did. That was their identity, and there were people whose entire careers were built on memory, and they were getting out of it. And people were going to lose their jobs, and people have to learn to do different things. They were have to mm. abandon or retool different fabs, and, and it was a big deal. And it took them actually several years to actually do it, but it it, it was critical because the, in what they shifted to was the the sort of CPU business, and the CPU business was different than memory because whereas diff, memory was all about that noise story, it was all about volume, making up in volume. Mm. Intel's CPU business was very different. It was about differentiation. Intel both designed and produced their chips, and it, it, it was actually a, an in an Apple sort of integration story. It was an integration at a very different part of the stack, but it had the same economic benefits that you want from integration, where by controlling two different pieces of the value chain, you're able to extract a huge number of profits from that value chain. In this mm. case, the value chain was, was Windows-based PCs, and basically Windows and Intel basically split a monopoly. It was it, mm -hmm. that's what They called it Wintel, and all the value flowed to those two companies. And it was massively profitable for years and years and years, and the Celeron story takes place in this context where Intel is – and this, again, it's it's an impressive story, but there is an aspect here where they're sort of cementing their monopoly in some respects. And, and <laughs> of course, it took a bite on margin to do that, but there was huge upsides to them doing mm. so. So what's so interesting about the shift to differentiated chips is – and this is what you were driving at in your comment. This is why it was such a rich comment. I want to touch on all aspects of it – is this bit where Intel – shifted into an approach and mindset where it was sort of a take it or leave it sort of thing with their customers. And they were going to design the chips and you were going to take the chips that Intel sold and they were going to be the best chips because Intel was the best at designing chips. And that was sort of mm -hmm. the end of the conversation. And so, and so they sort of dictated the way things went in PC world. And yes, AMD was still there and they had a sort of a brief resurgence in the late nineties, early two thousands with, I think it was the, the Athlon chips, uh, you know, old school mm -hmm. folks will remember, remember that, but Intel came back basically because Intel was integrated. So they could bring to bear their massive manufacturing uh, abilities. And then they, they sort of refocused on, on, 
uh, willpower or relatively willpower for laptops, and they sort of crushed crushed AMD sort of all over again. But again, Intel was deciding what needed to be built and was sort of giving it to you. And the problem with the uh, – and this was predicated on them owning design, right? They, they were going to be the designer of the chip. The problem with something like an iPhone is that – the design of the chip needed to become subservient to the device as a whole because now you weren't plugging into a wall. The chip couldn't go off and do what it wanted to, consume as much power as it wanted to, et cetera, et cetera. It needed to sort of be, be managed battery. It needed to be the operating system to have deep hooks into it to control how much power was used because Apple had this very ambitious plan which required a chip that, that would be integrated. It, it required a different focus, a different locus of integration. The, the mm-hmm. integration between the sort of like hardware and the operating system as opposed to within the chip itself. And Intel wasn't interested in that. That was the core issue. It wasn't just a margin issue. It was that Intel was focused on wringing performance out of their chips, whether it be x86 chips or their X-scale ARM division, and they weren't interested in sort of being dictated to by their customers, and that was the core issue. I mean, you go back and you read Steve biography, which I've been told you know is is a very accurate representation of the discussions. And Jobs wanted to go with Intel. Like Intel, he, he was very happy with the transition. Intel had been good to Apple mm. and helped them along, even though Apple was a relatively small customer at that time. And he he gave them the benefit of the doubt and really wanted to go with them. And the iPhone team and the, and, and the folks there had to come back and say, no, like it's just not going to work. We have to go with ARM, which by the way, and Samsung. It's, it's funny. Apple Apple people love to slag on Samsung when Samsung was such a critical partner, particularly for getting mm-hmm. the first few iPhones out the door. It's 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 kind of it's not a great look to be honest. But but the difference was is they were willing to do what Apple needed them to do, and and that was critical for the iPhone. And Intel just wasn't interested. The the thing that I think of when I think of Andy Grove is the title of that book, which is "Only the Paranoid Survive," and. Uh, the fact that you have someone like Jobs, who was clearly on a tear back then, um, is coming to you and asking you for something that, yeah, your organization doesn't traditionally do, but like, would he have taken that paranoid mentality? And it's like, okay, guys, yes, we usually ring performance out, but like, this is a special customer and let's try it and let's see where it goes. And uh, you can't help but wonder what, how that 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 would have played out. The other thing that's cr- that's crazy to me is like to t- cast your mind back to um to to the time when they're building the iPhone and you can understand why Jobs wants to go with the the Intel processor, right? Like they've just been so badly burnt by a dependency on uh, on uh, 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 IBM and Motorola with the PowerPC chips where that was not a core part of what they did. And then you've got a team coming to you and saying, you know what, like nobody else can do it. We need to do it ourselves. And you just think about that in the context of, of um, m- many different types of industries. Like uh, uh, it's, it's almost like an airline building its own planes. It's the, the extent to which you're standing back there in 2006 and making a decision to, yeah, we're going to launch this new device. And by the way, the CPU, we're going to build a custom CPU. And yes, we can look back and all the points you made around battery management and integration and the power envelope and the heat envelope and the size. Yeah, you get to control it. But that is just such a monster investment in order to like make that fly. I am curious. I've never heard definitively when Apple decided they were going to make their own chips. Because so just mm. for the first iPhone, it was an ARM chip 
that was manufactured by by Samsung. They acquired PA Semi on April 23rd, 2008, which would have been uh, sort of mm. as they were about to release the iPhone 3G. And then I think the first version of the chip came out in the iPad in 2010. It, which again was was a sort of a modified arm design. Their sort of huh. own designs came out uh, a few years later with the sixty four bit version. Yeah, the the, the yeah. iPhone five S. But but regardless, the the broader point is correct, which is this idea that they it needed they needed to do it themselves is the only way to achieve what they wanted to achieve, and they needed a partner that was okay with that, that was willing to be dictated. Two. And it, 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 you think about it, if they're doing it themselves, they need sort of, they're going to take the profits. That's sort of in, inherent in the integrated model, which means their partner needs to be someone that's, that's competing on a cost basis because that, that's the only partner that's going to work with sort of the integrated maker. You're going to win because you have a superior cost structure. And what over time that ended up being Samsung and then TSMC and TSMC is very, very interesting in contrast to Intel because whereas Intel was all about design, and we're going mm. to do the design and the manufacturing. TSMC from day one, their, their organizing principle from the moment they found the company is we will never compete with you on design. All we will ever do is sort of manufacturing. And that's a bit of a simplification. Like one of the things that differentiates TSMC is they have all these like blocks, like where it's almost like Legos. You go and you pull in all these mm. different things and put your chip together and you add in like your 5% of differentiation on top. So th- like there's a lot of design going on, but they're not competing with you on like they're not building their own 5G modems. They're not building their own processors, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting. If you go back and read like some of the interviews with Morris Chang, the, the founder of TSMC back in the day, it was almost a position in the market that was born of desperation where they had, they had nothing else to compete on and, and like they, they, they didn't have as their their node sizes weren't as small they, they, they couldn't produce the same volume but but the only options if you wanted to get your chips produced and you want to build your own fab you would go to mm. like texas instruments or something like that you would you would try to get space and you might get space but then if Texas Instruments got a big order, they'd kick you off because they would prioritize themselves. Oh, and they might steal your designs along the way because you're, you're on their own fab, right? <laughs> and it was, it was a big mess. And so what happened was TSMC, like, th- th- they had a point of differentiation, which was <laughs> because we have nothing else, we promise we're not going to compete with you. And, and that was a reason for companies to go there. And, and they started to get the volume and they started to right. be able to sort of accelerate it, it, their, their improvement curve. That curve that you put, that, that intersecting graph, you can make mm. that exact same graph with TSMC exactly. and their node sizes versus Intel, where they started three or four or five generations behind Intel and just, just year over year over year. TSMC invests like something like $15 billion every year, every year, every year, every year, every year. Every year. And they get more and more volume. And you have all these explosion of companies like an NVIDIA that, that's making graphics chips. They don't fab their own chips. The, 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 the entire graphics chip industry exists because of companies like TSMC and, and Samsung is, is, is the other big player here. And, and, and by being, be, having a different business model that was allowed integration mm. elsewhere in the value chain, and you're going to just be the, the superior sort of provider on cost and volume, th- let them sort of to this today, they've completely surpassed Intel and really are dominating the market. The re- I mean, it's, it's so fascinating. And it's one of these things where, um, 
<laughs> there's this aspect of strategy that definitely depends on luck and right place, right time. Because the the way you characterize it, that's not that's not a position that they were like, you know what, we're going to pick here because this is the place where it's going to explode. But just right place, right time. It, the 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 desktop revolution, like there's a lot more. I mean, uh, th- there's a lot more space. There's a in those cases like pow- power management and heat is less of an issue. So having one reference power, one reference design that's incredibly powerful works well. But as you think about where the world is going and where we know the world was heading back then towards mobile devices and smaller devices and everybody wanting small custom chips, uh, it, in the same way that, uh, that the, that, that, I mean, the desktop, the, the number of shipments for desktop computers was growing, sure, but like at a relatively steady pace, just the size of the addressable market for all these different type of mobile devices from smartphones to all the other things that they were doing. And, and at the time, maybe it just seemed like GPUs were the only part of the desktop that TMMC would, uh, would be doing. But as the mobile devices exploded, the addressable market exploded. And they were, they were getting, they were going to get more volume as a result of that than Intel. And like you said at the start, this is, this is fundamentally a volume game and they managed, sounds like a bit of luck, desperation, et cetera, et cetera, to position themselves to just be the beneficiaries of that explosion in volume. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to oversell the luck angle. I mean, Morris Chang was an executive at Texas Instruments for for a long time. He's a brilliant, brilliant man, and he's mm. he did see the opportunity. But it was also it was sort of a combination of seeing the opportunity. You know, the the Intel the the Intel government, the Taiwan Taiwanese government wanted to invest in this space, and really being the <laughs> also being the only opportunity. But yeah, it's fascinating to think about the chicken and egg issue, right? To what extent if TSMC didn't exist, would there be this explosion of you know thousands mm. and thousands and thousands of different kinds of chips, you know that 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 you can sort of get custom made? I mean, it, I've written a lot about TSMC, and and I don't know how much we've had a chance to podcast about them, but they're you know they're really one of the most important companies. Like in tech history, and that's not overstating it because they enabled this entire explosion. And you you have sort of like it's like an accordion, right? You started out and you had all these specialized chips, and then you sort of came into this this era of the general purpose processor, and then it's sort of been a re explosion of all these of all these chips. And I think what Intel missed was they made so much money in that contraction into the general processor sort of stage that they never. They, this is the this is the shift they missed. They, they were unprepared for that for that expansion, and you went from a world where all the money was in the design to actually there's a ton of money in manufacturing simply because there's so few companies that can do it. I mean, right now, like there's TSMC and Samsung, and that's basically it. Global Foundry is kind of bailed out of the game at ten nanometers, and 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 so you have this situation where. You know, they're like not all chips need to be that small and that fast, but there's really only a couple places to go. And and Intel Intel's not there. And 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 they are so focused on fabricating their chips that one, they've run into like a <laughs> just a disaster of trying to get their node sizes down. But two, they can't even they can't take on alternatives. They had this, you know, a few years ago, Intel bought Altera. Which makes FPGAs, which are basically chips that you can program. And so you can like change the logic gates and make them do different functions sort of on the fly. And one of the, re- it was kind of a weird purchase at the time because Intel already had sort of an agreement with them. But one of the uh, uh, reasons why Intel bought them was 
you know, they, they, they would start fabbing Altera chips in their fabs. And, then, and at this point, this is when sort of PC sales were slowing. And remember, there's a, it's a volume game, right? You need your fabs to be to be fully utilized to make sure you make back your massive investment in them. And it, what happened was Intel couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They ended up basically fabbing half of the chip on their processes, which they were able to pull off. And then they had to hire TSMC to fab the other half. It was like the IO half versus the process. I can't remember which one was which. And, and, and they basically had to hire out TSMC because TSMC was better at like sort of taking orders and listing their customers and adapting their manufacturing to that. And Intel was so locked into how they did things, they couldn't adapt even for their own product. And and, and they got – we talked about this – remember a few – it was a few podcasts ago where I talked about this idea where when you start out a company, right, you're like walking around and you have complete freedom of movement. Yeah. And then you get a little you, – you start to get some processes in place. You get better at things. And now you're riding a bike. And then you're driving a car. And eventually yep. at some point, the best, most efficient companies are like bullet trains. And and they're so much faster than anybody else. And they're so yeah. much more powerful. And they're so much more efficient. It's like how can I compete with that? Well, it's actually quite straightforward how you compete with it. You go somewhere, the, there are no bullet train tracks because the bullet train can't go anywhere but where its tracks go. And Intel is the ultimate example of a bullet train. They had a bullet train for building their integrated processors, and th- that bullet train was so finely tuned. It wasn't just that they couldn't build processors because of money issues or because of the margin issues. They were incapable of doing it. Yeah. And they were lucky and they had somewhere to go. Like they were, they were like the PC market started to slow. They clearly missed mobile, but that the, their, the sophistication that they developed in building those, uh, uh, desktop processors allowed them to move up market into server chips. And like that has extended the life of the company f- for really quite a long time. But which, which by the way, is, was a disruption in its own right. Right. Because right, Intel exactly. was coming in. In this case, they had massive scale from building all these desktop PCs and you had all these specialized server architectures like Spark or, or, uh, mm. you know, even Itanium or whatever it might be. And the Intel x86 consumer processors basically went up into servers, disrupting the folks that were there before. Right. And so like they, they went up and they benefited from it. But like, I, I feel like with this announcement, um, it's it's really the writing starting to 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 like emerge on the wall. Like even even their 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 current place of refuge up there is not going to be safe, um, because uh, like you mentioned, TM. It's not just this. Isn't just a story of Apple. Apple's just one example of an ARM reference chip. ARM's benefited. T TSMC has benefited. Um, and and now there are a whole bunch of companies that have previously uh, relied on Intel chips for their servers, but they're starting to. They're starting to look at ARM chips in the same way that those uh, companies that were relying on the previous generation of server chips looked at desktop chips because it is literally just like there are a set of inputs, uh, like cost to, to purchase, like uh, um, um, amount of power that it draws, space, et cetera, et cetera. And they will do the analysis and whatever works better, they will take. And uh, there's a tweet that I actually linked to in in that article where Andy Jassy, um, CEO of AWS, is talking is talking up the cost savings that are involved with uh, Amazon switching to this new kind of self-designed um, reference chip. And I like it, 
it's concerning for me from the perspective of Intel. I don't think they're going to have many places left to go pretty soon. It's going to be interesting to see. And this is maybe a way, uh, uh, a chance to talk a bit more about the, the Apple angle on these announcements as mm. well. Like the ecosystem bit's important, right? The other, what makes it possible for Apple to pull off this switch is, you know, the benefit of integration is not just the business model, which is a, a great one. Uh, and it's not just sort of the, you know, you're your own best customer and all those sorts of things, but also you control all the relevant pieces, right? And so a- Apple can make sure that the operating system is ready to go for these new chips and they can make sure that sort of the development ecosystem is ready to go for these new chips and they can build in sort of all the technologies that to carry along the bits and pieces of the ecosystem that are not ready to go whether it be rosetta or Mm. all these sorts of sorts of technologies and that it's a it's a place where you know maybe an under it's interesting like because integration on one sense in the intel sense if it goes sort of stale it can ossify you get you locked into a position but if you can it can also in another sense, it could, it can give you a flexibility, which I think Apple is demonstrating in this case. You know, a big question, you know, Windows has tried to, you know, there's a ARM version of Windows, which is, you know, in part because the ARM chips for Windows just aren't that good. But also the ecosystem is hard to sort of drag it along because mm-hmm. Windows has sort of limited sort of influence and control on 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 the ecosystem as a whole and you know for servers you know, is that going to be sort of a, a salvation for intel where the ecosystem is so built up around x86 that you know yes the the arm sort of uh systems are are, are cheaper in theory but are they you know in practical sense is it going to be difficult is the is the fact that apple will have sort of arm processors which means developers can sort of develop for arm you know they, they have it locally and in the cloud the same sort of thing would that be a boon to arm in the cloud I, lots of stuff to play out i all this to say i see and recognize and agree with your point that intel the, the mm. danger is particularly acute now it, it will be interesting to see how how much importance and effect the sort of the ecosystem bit matters yeah, uh, totally. There's one other interesting thing about this, um, which is the, the theory of integration and modularity, uh, as, as Clay, as, as Clay pulled out in a couple of his books. Generally, the, the idea behind the theory is at the start being integrated is an advantage. And that, that kind of played out in terms of, um, if you think about, uh, just comparing the performance of Apple's chips to the performance of Intel's chips, like because the axes of performance of, of what mattered changed, like it wasn't so much outright performance. It was like battery, battery life and heat and size and whatever being integrated makes a ton of sense, but it would, it would traditionally have been the case that a, a subsequent modular solution ends up being the one that uh, that ends up being better. And given Apple's approach to chip design has been kind of integrated the whole way through, it's interesting for me to see how they have just shot up. The ex- shot up past Intel. The explanation I guess I would have is like, it's just a very interesting, it's, it's as is always the case with these theories, it's how you define the integration and the modularity. Because in, in a certain sense, yes, Apple designed the chips, but they were also relying on TSMC. Bingo. And also, uh, which which was modular at the get go. Yeah, um, that, 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 this is exactly it. Like this is this is one of the things I've pushed on Clay in particular is that 
defining integration as only possibly existing between operating system and hardware is is mm. is a, is a mistake and it leads to bad analysis Be, because the integration can the value chain for a computer has many 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 sort of steps in it and that in mm. and it always it's always noted that you know Samsung was always highly integrated Samsung was just integrated between components and the phone as a whole and so Samsung w- could produce you know could, could have these cost advantages in the production of the phone that that were unmatched whereas Apple w- was very modular in their sort of components it, it, as far as you know where, where they sourced them from they sourced them from Samsung itself right even though they're competing against them and 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 mm. that's always been evident to me and you saw this with arm versus Intel I think this I wrote an article about this a few years ago where arm was inherently modular and lent mm-hmm. itself to mobile phones whereas the problem with Intel is that it was integrated right and so so you're exactly right the big difference and the reason why this sort of generic off the shelf integration talk misses the point mm-hmm. even as it sort of upholds the overall principle is that this actually is a case where being integrated hurts you the one being hurt though is intel not apple mm. apple is modular in, in the case of chip building apple is a modular they do the design right. tsmc does the manufacturing and tsmc is better at manufacturing than intel or anyone else because they manufacture for everyone which is the whole idea right. of modularity where you get scale you do it for everyone you specialize mm. on one thing you become better at anyone, than anyone else so it actually fulfills the theory and if you think it doesn't it's because you're too locked on the only possible point of right. integration is operating system and hardware sorry so i was it's, a little ranty but no, 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 no. It makes total sense. It's just a really good reminder. And I think where Clay ran afoul, it's it's not that there was something wrong with the theory. I feel like the context and understanding in depth the context in which the theory applies is just so essential in terms of doing the, getting the analysis. Yeah, right. that's exactly right. And We've talked about this before. Like he, like he wasn't a technical guy, and so I like I think he. He, he he got a little over his skis, I think, when he started talking yeah. about some of this stuff because like because the insight right. on the operating system it, it did there was an aspect of that to Windows versus Mac. I, I think that I, I don't think it's the complete story there. I think the fact that mm-hmm. Windows started with a big advantage, it was already in the enterprise, and wrote IBM's coattails mattered just as much. But the the, the 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 general point was was a valid one, but that doesn't mean it follows. That's the only sort of point of integration in in, in a technological product. What was really interesting, and um, I guess like Intel ossified because it's integrated and it didn't move its point of integration. What I really loved about uh, this announcement, uh, like the, the, uh, the M1 chip being announced, Apple's M1 chip, uh, and comparing it to Intel, is it's it's almost like a, a a tale of two integrators. And the thing that I thought was really cool about your article was like. Um, you showed how unlike Intel, Apple's, the way in which Apple's integration has taken place has kind of evolved over time, depending on the circumstances. And, um, I, I really appreciated that because, well, I mean, and, and just more broadly, I think one of the mistakes that, um, folks make, and I, th- it kind of relates to what we were just talking about is people over index on their favorite example. And I think perhaps Clay did that with the operating system CPU thing, but a lot of people do the exact same thing with organizational design and Apple and just assume integrated is always best. And the right answer is it depends. And like Intel is just a fantastic example of 
it depends, um, and how they didn't evolve the nature of their integration, and it, it looks like it's it's got them into serious trouble. But the nature of Apple's integration has evolved, um, and and just seeing how that's happened, I thought was it was really really interesting. Yeah, I think a point to go back to with with Apple is the decision to put iTunes on Windows, because you could see the temptation to. Yeah. to sort of integrate the iPod with the Mac, right? And that would have right. been a mistaken point of integration because you, I think integration goes wrong when you're using one thing to leverage another thing. Like, like think about Windows, for example, saving the touch version of Office for the Windows tablets, right? And they, totally. they couldn't release it on iPad. That was, that was an attempt to... That, that was a poor use of integration. That like when integration gets into we're going to use one unit of the business to sort of rescue the other <laughs> unit of business, right. then you're going the wrong way. And, and there there was some aspect of that I think with Intel, like where where they were they were so determined to make x86 work, and you know there's going to be Atom on, on on mobile phones or whatever it might be. When in reality they needed to shift. You know, the shift Intel needed to make was instead of letting x86 drive the bus for their manufacturing, mm-hmm. x86 needed to be the first best customer for their fabs that that right. would be able to handle any types of chips. And, and they need to switch the, the, the tail. And the same thing with Windows, where what happened with Microsoft is Windows drove all the other businesses. But at some point, Windows ran out of gas and they needed to release they needed to not flip the car around and say, okay, now right. the other businesses are going to drive Windows. No, they needed to let Windows go. And same thing with, with, with Intel. x86 drove their fab business for many, many, many years. But at some point, they needed to let x86 go and, st- and, and, and let the fab business flower into sort of its own sort of thing. And that's the key mistake they made. Apple, on the other hand, starting with this sort of iTunes and iPod example, they didn't let the Mac drive the car. They cut it loose and they went to Windows. And you can see a similar sort of evolution here where 10, 15 years ago when they switched to Intel, it's very striking because in that case, it was to Apple's advantage to have the same hardware as everybody else because they had a software advantage. And and so by having the same hardware, they could remove that sort of negative and let their software shine. Today, mm. more than ever, particularly when it comes to the Mac, they don't have a hard software advantage. Like I, I know Apple people don't want to hear this, but if you're like a web developer, there's really good reasons to like go on Windows right now or Linux or whatever it might be. Uh, particularly Windows with, you know, you get the generally consumer friendly. Uh, yes, it's not like like the Apple's advantage is getting down to like the, the old school Apple advantage. Like we're going back to the 90s where, OK, I like the look and feel of 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 Macintosh mm-hmm. better, but but that's not, you know, that's. It's different than like when uh, Apple was running Unix and Windows was not. You know, like it's it's a, yeah, like yeah, today totally. Windows is much more competitive in that regard. Uh, and and all and from a consumer perspective, all the experiences are in web apps. So it's basically the same across things. So Apple, instead of doubling down on software, which they did for a while, like we're gonna have the Mac App Store, we're gonna do all these sorts of things, and and which actually just made the situation worse in my estimation. Now their advantage on the Mac is gonna be. Our hardware is way better than everybody else. It's way faster. The battery life is way better. And you're going to buy our computer and get overall the same experience you get on Windows. Oh, by the way, we think we have a better user experience too, but that's no longer driving the bus. What's driving the bus is our chip team, which kicks everybody's rear end. Mm, it's it's really interesting. I want to wind back to something you said at the start, how uh, it, it, like when you use a point of integration to drive something else. And this was a this was an uh, something that I became pretty focused on like when we started talking about how come uh 
Microsoft missed mobile. And I feel like it, it, there's this curse of success and blessing of failure type thing going on where that because Microsoft had been so successful with Windows and because that had been the thing, it was very hard for them to let go of like, we just need to keep making Windows successful because that's the thing that's made us rich and famous. Same thing with Intel. Like, uh, like the, this x86 architecture is the thing, like, and this integration and just making the fastest chips that we've designed uh, is the thing that's made us successful. We need to keep doing it. I, I remember Steve Jobs did have to I, get. He was he was dragged, kicking and screaming into making uh, the 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 software for um, iTunes for Windows. Like it started on the Mac, and people started clamoring for it. And it wasn't really clear that they were going to do it. But I think the thing that was actually in Apple's favor back then was yeah the mac was was on a bit of a tear but relative to the extent which wintel had dominated the market the mac had kind of failed and so that made it easier for them to give up oh we're going to use this thing to drive the mac when they began to realize hang on maybe this thing could end up being bigger than the mac yeah it, it, it's one of those things where it makes it easier right <laughs> if you have totally and in that regard it was i think easier for apple to see because you know, at the end of the day, selling like you're right, they'd failed so long with the Mac that it was like, OK, I can accept the fact that there's just a huge opportunity over here on the Windows side mm. looking from the outside. And I know this because we wrote articles about this and talked about this. Like it was clear that Intel needed to shift to a fab based model with sort of x86 layered on top. But you could see why it was a little bit more difficult for them to see internally. It's like, no, mm-hmm. really, the next version of Atom is going to be low-powered enough, and then, then we're going to take over. You know, it's like, and they they sort of kept doubling down on on the same approach. They were very much doing the no, the the iPod is really going to to, to drive Mac sales. It's going to happen this year, I promise. And and by and then it was too late. Like they lost their manufacturing advantage, which was the whole thing they could have sort of doubled down on. Right. The other interesting thing, and uh, I mean, I, maybe I'm like the 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 concerned Apple observer, and I've played this role a little bit over, over the years talking with you, but I th- I think it it worries me a little bit that the way you describe the differentiation that Apple's going to be bringing to the Mac is is going to be more feeds and speeds based as opposed to something else, and. Uh, I don't know. Like, and I, I, I also think about the criticism that you've made of, uh, the, their, their inability to integrate slash modularize correctly with developers and creating an ecosystem for the best software and how that's kind of failed the iPad. One of the really cool things about them, uh, focusing on the, on the, creating the same underlying CPU architecture between the iPhone, the iPad and the Mac is that um, all the apps written on either will be able to, well, all the apps written for the iPhone and the iPad, it'll be super easy to bring them across for, to the Mac. Uh, and you can see that there's like a bunch of really um, big advantages in that. Like, for example, if you think about Mac gaming, it's always kind of sucked. Well, 
obviously there's a there's a type of game that's on the iPhone that may not appeal to everybody, but the market that the number of available games suddenly opens up dramatically. But you think about the productivity software that could have been built for the iPad, and of course, also part of the criticism that you've leveled, and I think is fair, is that people haven't necessarily taken advantage of the iPad and created unique like uh, pane of glass type apps that they could have. But even still, it feels like the differentiation around, yes, the hardware is nice, but like the fact that the only software differentiation is maybe like we've had, we've got a little bit of an edge in terms of the user experience, as opposed to we've created this environment where you have this plethora of apps that are an absolute delight to use. Uh, Like that worries me a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because on one hand, I I wasn't sure I, I I wasn't quite sure how to wrap this my article because like it came across a little negative, but at the same time, I almost wish I could rewrite it for this podcast because I think the mm. contrast to Intel is very striking and it's very admirable that Apple has basically shifted its point of differentiation. And I'm curious to what extent it was even intentional. You know, like mm. like does does Apple does Apple really realize that the world is web apps you and you see safari and and how difficult developers find developing for safari relative to chrome mm. being and, and it feels like apple is sort of fighting this world but at the same time the openness of the mac is in some respects saving apple because you can have chrome and you can have electron and yes traditional mac people hate that <laughs> they, they can't stand it but the the world's moved on the world is about web apps now and go, even more so going forward and web apps are very resource intensive they take they take a lot of energy they take a lot of battery life and apple is going to have the best sort of product for that world and whether it's intentional or not it's admirable that they ended up there and it's it's it's, it's i mean it kind of has the tsmc point you made before is it luck is it is it like is it being in the right place at the right time i don't know and like that's it's kind of like why i left it sort of up in the air like i kind of feel like apple screwed this up but they ended up in a great place so i mean hey they're in a better spot than intel that's for sure yeah, I, I, they're, they're absolutely in a better spot of, uh, than Intel, but like writing this thing, uh, last night and then reading your, uh, reading your piece this morning, I started to wonder is like Apple starting to get to a point similar to what Intel was back in 2005, where everything is actually looking pretty rosy. Like, uh, I mean, again, let's take the iPad. Like, y- your point is like, this is a magical device, but the magic happens when an app opens and they haven't done a good job of fostering that. Um, y- y- you think about the Mac and like the user experience advantage. And it's like, actually, if I think about the way that uh, the Mac UI has evolved over the past five to 10 years, I'm not sure that it's moved in a positive way. Oh, I, mean, I, I, I then- love the fact that Sketch, which I use in the article, launched with Snow Leopard. Because it, it's been downhill ever since, from from my perspective. Yeah, um, and 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 then at the same time, like you, you think about like if the future's web apps, and increasingly in the classroom and in in some businesses, you're starting to see Chromebooks take off, and like that's that's a that's a that's a device that's built around the browser. Now that's not going to satisfy developers, but like you said earlier, you've got a 
you've got Windows starting to catch up and actually being able to make a pretty a pretty reasonable argument um, for the high end as to why developers should should um, should use Windows. And it's like the the, the phone business and having the, the power of that chip in that phone and the battery life and everything associated with it is is probably a, a pretty strong moat. But you can start to see. I don't know. I just like as I read as I read um as I read your article and like the nature of the the integration and the differentiation as we went through it just started to feel a little bit more tenuous than it had perhaps previously. Yeah, but I mean all the better that they have by far the best chips in the industry and they don't doesn't seem like anyone's even close, right? I mean mm. like today if and this is the point the distinction I was trying to draw. Back when they switched to Intel they had a software advantage, which meant having the same hardware as everyone was to their advantage. Today, they have the best hardware, which means everyone using the same software is to their advantage. Like They, they can benefit, by, basically, mm. from the entire world building these resource-intensive web apps, which actually make it make their computers shine even more. And, and again, it, it doesn't feel like our conception of Apple. But the reality mm. is that Apple is a hardware and logistics powerhouse. That is the like what Apple does that no one else in the world can do is produce these these devices at incredible scale with these unmatched chips. And that's that's their true competitive moat. And this in many respects is doubling down on that. They have the fastest chips. They can produce sufficient dev devices to satisfy demand for these chips and then because they sell it as one widget they make a whole ton of money at everyone they they sell i mean you, you maybe you're what you're clamoring for you're clamoring for the apple that you always knew but the apple you always knew is actually the recipe to end up like intel I, I, it's it's possible but like i i can't imagine like I, I, uh, I mean, the flip side of that is the hardware advantage is absolutely real, but is that causing them to be blind or not to focus on aspects of figuring out the business model for developers or working on the user interface for the Mac? Like these things, like there's no reason why they can't, uh, why there's nothing stopping them from getting those things right. And the, the extent to which the chips are, I mean, the, the case you just made then is, is absolutely real. And as these apps become more intensive, yeah, more power, more battery life, um, is definitely going to be an advantage, but it doesn't feel like that's reason enough not to do the other stuff as well. Sure, the ship has sailed. Like, like the the, yeah. the native. <laughs> this is gonna make a bunch of bunch of my friends mad. Uh, native apps on Mac are a thing of the past. It just it is what it is. Like everything is a web app in the future. Yes, there will still be Mac apps for people that love that sort of thing. But the world of productivity and software and, and like Figma is this is why Figma is such an important app, because what's always been the canonical desktop app, right? What's the app that, that you just can't Photoshop. do? It's Photoshop, right? And Sketch came along and Sketch was a better Photoshop, but it was still like Sketch was in many respects a better Photoshop because it embraced the Mac to an extent that Photoshop being a cross-platform product never could. But Figma is something completely different. 
Figma starts out with we're going to have something that that is built around collaboration and teams. And you think about you're building an app. There's there's developers, there's designers, there's product managers. They all need access mm-hmm. to a source of truth. Yeah. This passing around documents thing is just not a viable future. It's not when, once an alternative has emerged. Now that made sense in the 80s or 90s or 2000s when we didn't have the level of broadband and access in, to to connectivity that we do. But remember, Apple was on stage a month ago in 5G, 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 5G. 5G, 5G, 5G. What's the implication of 5G? The implication of 5G is that a lot of problems that stop that world from coming from being a reality for something as intensive as something like Photoshop are gone. And Figma starts with that assumption, and every productivity app is going to go down this road. It's got, it, like the story's over. Apple perhaps yeah. could have designed APIs that took advantage of that and were still native. Probably not. I, I was. I probably overstated that in the article. To be honest, I, I would probably rewrite that if I could. But 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 the reality is, this is the future. And in that future, Apple, whether they did it on purpose or not, deserves a lot of credit for having the company extremely well placed to take advantage of that future. Yeah, I mean, okay. Let me let me do my best to to create the bear case, which is. Um, 5G enables a lot of, in the same way. And oh, this to is be clear, you're using Figma on your broadband network at work most of the time. <laughs> it's not just a 5G right. thing, but I just thought it would, that would, it, it's, it's notable that this is sort of a, there's a broader base sort of trend going on here. Right. But, and agreed. And I've, I've, <laughs> I've used Figma a fair few times in my day job. So, I, so I understand. But like, he, here's the bear case, which is, Apple, Apple's doing what Intel's doing right now in terms of shooting up and like they have all this incredible performance at the high end, but 5G enables actually uh, you to offload a whole bunch of that workload off the client device onto the service. And um, yeah, you're, you're doubling down on creating performance in the device in the same way that Intel doubled down on creating performance in the device, but it's it's always the nature of these things. Like we talked, we've talked so many, many times about how like it swings back and forth between whether integration or modularity or, or, or like running on the client or running on the server. And actually 5G makes a pretty good case to shift those workloads back to the server. And again, you're seeing it in the gaming market right now where you, you have, um, very heavy, uh, CPU and GPU on, um, you, you always traditionally had it um, on on a local client device, but broadband is getting and technology and and the the quality of servers is getting such that you can shift that up to the cloud. And at that point, you don't need a heavyweight device. And that's the thing that Apple's Apple's like it's it's going full down. Uh, it's doubling down on creating a device for a client world. Five G might actually enable it to shift back to the server. Yeah, the Mac is a better story, right? Because Apple is going to win on innovation. They're going to have the fastest chips. They're going to like, people are going to buy them because they perform the best and they will run these sort of cross platform web apps because they're better, right? Whereas the App Store, they are, they're taking advantage of their integration, which gave them the control of the App Store, which the contractual control of what apps can or cannot do. And they're basically telling Xbox, you know, no, <laughs> you can't mm. do it. And they're trying to cut it off at the knees before you get there. It's it, from an innovation perspective, it's definitely not great. Yeah. And the, um, what are that the apps called where you add it to the home screen? I always forget the name. Like they're not making it easy on that either, right? Oh, yeah. The, the progressive web apps where, yeah, you can, that's like, yep, it. Yep. No, it, it, and that's, that's one where it's like, 
how can a regulator understand the intricacies of progressive web apps? But it's, it's a great example of where Apple's control of the app store, in my estimation, is a problem. And yeah, it, 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 because you, you could, they control the render. They control exactly what those apps can or cannot do. They can sort of handicap them in a way they just can't be competitive with native apps. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the, the openness of the Mac, it's like forcing Apple. It's such a, it's a great example of where openness drives innovation. Like Apple has to compete. You know, because they, they can't limit stuff. And it's, it's a, it's, you know, it's a reason to, it's a mark in the favor of openness. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, from the perspective of consumer benefit and forcing competition, maybe not from the perspective of, uh, Apple generating, yeah, generating outsized margins. <laughs> well, but also having the, you know, make sure you, you maintain the flexibility over time to, yeah. to, to make, make changes, right? Right. The lock in in the long run it hurts the locker inner, uh, more yes. than anyone else. Uh, that, that is, that is very true. All right, very good. Well, it was it was good. I, again, I, I kind of like I'd I like to write another article now, but like this will hopefully uh, combining your insights and my insights because I think the I think the contrast is very striking, and so I'm glad we were able to do this. Yeah, it, I, I I really was too. Um, it, th- these two companies are like giants of Silicon Valley, and <laughs> I'm still hung up on Game of Thrones, but it it it, it feels like this was. Uh, just the the way you approached it from Apple's perspective and then also the Intel perspective in the context of disruption and seeing the, the threads uh, and the narratives interleave over time, like back in 2005, and now we're revisiting it in 2020. It, it, it definitely... The, just, just seeing how it, it, they, they interleave, but particularly this moment in time, seeing that graph where Apple's CPU performance actually manages to exceed that of Intel, it definitely feels like a season finale note. And I, I'm, I'm glad we got to, to get this one out. Well, I will say uh, we are not going to base our recording schedule on when you write. Otherwise, we might do every <laughs> six months as opposed to every month. Uh, but when you write, we will record. So. Very good. <laughs> Anyhow, it's good to catch up with you. I enjoyed yeah, your article, cool. and I look forward to uh, talking to you soon, whether or not you write another article ever again. Sounds good, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds good. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Bye-bye.